Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Camp. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. And the good news is you can get started on my middle grade adventure about an 11-year-old detective who's half Batman, half Sherlock Holmes with a jetpack. For free, you can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as an audiobook, a paperback, but the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I've written some novels for older readers, such as a zombie novel. And you know, if you only read one zombie book in your life, you should read I Zombie by Hugh Howie. Uh, fair enough. If you read two zombie books uh, in your life, however, uh, you should read I Zombie by Hugh Howie. You should read This Is Not a Test by Courtney Summers. The Rising by Brian Keene's pretty darn good. Sell by Stephen King. Home Delivery was another great one. You know, there's, there's a lot of great ones out there. But when you get through them, check out All Together Now, a zombie story by Robert Kent and his companion piece, All Right Now, in which I make gratuitous references to wool. Uh, and then you might also check out The Book of David, a five-volume serial horror novel, which is my homage both to Stephen King and to Hugh Howie, because it's me trying to uh, do, do the wool, do the Beacon 23, do the sand, get my own serial novel out there. Uh, and if you're curious about The Book of David, it's about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him visions involving flying saucers. Uh, it is nuts. And the first chapter of The Book of David, chapter one, the first in the serial novel, is free to download as an ebook. The paperbacks are also available. For God's sake, welcome to the 75th and final episode of this podcast. Uh, it can now be revealed that the first 74 episodes were all just a clever ruse to lure Hugh Howie to the show. Uh, and now that he's here, I can drop the charade. <laughs> we don't have to do any more episodes. Stop teasing, of course. Uh, we've got three more uh, lined up and ready to go. I'm also very excited about. Uh, and I try not to show favoritism to authors because it's it's a bad policy. But you know I love your stuff. I make references to you uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you are the only author who's ever been interviewed twice at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, you've asked you asked the original seven questions, then I wrote seven more just for you. Uh, and I still can't believe my good fortune that not only are those interviews available now at middlegradeninja.com, uh, but now that we're, we're having this conversation, my cup runneth over. Uh, we're stuck here in quarantine for COVID-19, and I've just had this to look forward to all week, and it's just been a huge lift. And I, I thank you, Hugh, for making the time and for, for being here tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rob, and congrats on 75 episodes. I um, I'm a little disappointed you didn't save me for the hundredth, but I, I uh, congratulations to whoever gets that uh, that spot. Oh no, 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 it was a random tweet. <laughs> you are welcome back for a number one hundred, but you said no. Yes, I don't take it. Oh, no, all the is... iron's hot. Let's do it. But I would have been on your first episode. I would have saved you all this trouble if, uh, if I'd have known. This is too much. You've been doing this for a long time, and man, I'm just happy to be here. No, that's uh, well. You know what? The, the other seventy-four conversations they, they were pretty darn interesting, also. <laughs> so it's win-win. Uh, so usually where I ask uh, our guests to start is the worst thing in the world would be to make you sit through me explaining your biography uh, or one of your books. Uh, so if you would just kind of give esteemed audience a little bit of an overview, if there's anybody who's interested in publishing, they probably already know a little bit about who you are. But for the uninitiated, uh, tell them tell them who you are, Hugh Howie. Um, man, I, I still feel like a uh, like kid who grew up on a farm in North Carolina and like loves to read it. Uh, all the things that have happened in the last 10 years or so just really don't compute. 
but uh, bounced around a lot when I was younger and worked a lot of odd jobs and lived on sailboats and um, dropped out of college, uh, sailed around the islands for about a year and then started working on yachts and did that for about a decade and um, dreamt about writing a novel my whole life. About 20 years, I would write like two chapters of a book and give up and get disinterested and move on to something else. And um, I think I was like 30, 32 when I wrote my first uh, novel and realized, oh my God, I can actually do this and finish a book and um, did not stop writing for you know the next uh, six or seven years. I was writing two or three novels a year. And it was my seventh uh, published work that really allowed me to quit my day job. Um, this short story called Wool that uh, was just on sale for 99 cents on Amazon. And it was that, that one thing that went viral, you know, and, and since then a lot of my other stuff has done well. And I've been just really lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and really fortunate to um, uh, have had a bunch of self-publishing tools come online when I was writing and, and kind of um, didn't have big ambitions for my writing career. So I didn't go after big publishing deals. Instead, I thought I would just do it myself and it ended up being a, a great decision. And uh, yeah, about, um, I guess the only other thing to add is about five years ago, I jumped on a, a sailboat in South Africa and started um, doing the sailing. I've always dreamed about doing sailing across the Atlantic and the Pacific and visiting some really, really remote parts of the world. And um, now I'm in New York and here to do some more writing and work on some Hollywood stuff that maybe we can drop hints about today and uh, probably spend a couple of years um, um, getting some stuff done in the States before I take off uh, for some more sailing. So that's it. Just feel like a dumb lucky kid who's like getting to do the two things he's always dreamed about his whole life, you know, write books and, and sail across the horizon. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I, I want to make sure we go back and, 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 and break down just a, a little bit. But question that comes to mind immediately here we are in the middle of uh, quarantine for COVID-19 this seems like the ideal time to hop on a sailboat and, and get out as far away from the land as possible come back once uh, once we're all zombies but the rest of us are healthy and <laughs> yeah you know you would think that but um, the uh, all my friends who are on boats are having a really hard time um, you either have very limited shore access so you're kind of just stuck on the boat at anchor which doesn't sound terrible but you can get pretty stir crazy or countries are limiting um, who can come in and clear out and, and you can't just choose where you're going to sail next. Um, I, one way to think about it is when you live on a sailboat, you're kind of living on the fringe of civilization already. Like it's a pretty tenuous situation and the only way it's uh, enjoyable and viable is that you have um, civilization to dip into, to get supplies, to um, you know, go ashore and see things, to order spares. And when society is, you know, that, that bedrock that you rely on, when civilization starts to crumble a little bit, living on the edge is no longer uh, as comforting as you would think. Um, honestly, there's no place I'd rather be than New York. And I know that sounds crazy when you look at what we've had happen here in the numbers, but like, you know, we've taken all the precautions, we wear masks and wash our hands and are quarantining and not, you know, socializing with, with friends, except, you know, uh, a park bench away, um, keeping our distance when we go for walks with friends. But we go to the grocery store and it's just full of food. We can order any kind of cuisine we want delivered to us. Uh, 
Um, New York is very quiet right now. There's no traffic. It's the birds are out. The air feels fresher. It's uh, one of, you know, nothing can stop. If I was on a boat in the South Pacific, the people here would still be suffering and people would still be losing their jobs and bad things would be happening. So no, nowhere you can be in the world, you're going to prevent things from, from taking place like they are. But um, I, I feel very secure here and very lucky and we, we aren't hurting for anything. And this, this city is so robust and so full of amazing people. I, I happen to be here on uh, 9-11. I was actually at the base of the World Trade Center when all that went down. And the way the city responded uh, and then the way the country and the world responded around us was just inspiring to me. And I feel the same way. Um, you just missed it because it's eight o'clock here, but it's seven o'clock. We bang pots and pans and everybody goes out in their balconies and we really celebrate the people who are working so hard to keep everything moving. So I, I have not been sad to be here at all. I was actually in Portugal when things started getting really crazy and we flew back to be home for this. And uh, I'm glad we did. Been super happy here. Here, I mean, you know, the nice thing about talking to writers is has your life changed that dramatically by being quarantined? Has my life changed? Um, I don't know. My life has been so strange that this, you know, humans adapt so quickly. I feel like this is just like another another chapter in a really weird life. Like living on a boat is is really wild. Like every every month or so, I'd be living in a different country and around different languages. And you start to feel like, uh, um, you know, my very first series of books was about this uh, teenage girl, you know, flying from planet to planet on her ship with her friends. And it really felt like like that. Like we would stop in um, really remote islands. People that do a lot of people that have never left the islands um, went to St. Helena, where Napoleon was interred, and met people who were in their 80s there who never left that island because it's so far from anywhere. Um, went to a place called Palmerston Island, which is between the Cook Islands and French Polynesia, and it was founded by a man and three wives like forever ago. And there's still three villages on this island, all within hundreds of yards of each other. And those three villages are like, um, have grown out of those three women and their, their children. And you have to marry within the village. And it's just the most unique and wild place you've ever even dreamed about. And, um, you know, lived with those people for, for a while. And, and uh, I have to say, like, you, you kind of get used to how bizarre the world is, and this just feels like another, another situation like that. So, um, of course, it's changed our daily routine, but it doesn't make me feel like a different person at all. It, uh, you just kind of, you know, accept it and get used to it and make the best of it. And I always try to see the silver lining and everything. You know, we're um, cooking a lot and you know, reading and enjoying, um, enjoying my relationship with my girlfriend and, um, uh, yeah. I playing board games online with tabletop simulator, something I didn't even know existed. And it's actually really fun. So I've been playing games with people I don't get to see very often in Texas and California. So I, there's blessings in everything, you know? So you playing like uh, monopoly or a little, little more advanced than that. Monopoly is like, <laughs> I could go on a rant about monopoly. It's like one of the worst board games ever made. And it's wild that it's like <laughs> the one board game everyone has to own. But, um, I don't like board games where like someone can be can be knocked out of the game early and then have to just sit there and watch and the game goes on too long and it's uh, uh yeah I, there's so many great board games out there and that's not one of them but 
Um, yeah, like Catan and Carcassonne and Azul and Wingspan and Gloomhaven. Um, I know it sounds like gibberish to a non-board gamer, but... Ah, no, Catan. Yeah, this Catan. Oh, Catan's classic, but this is like the golden age of board gaming, and Tabletop Simulator is a great way to... It actually doesn't feel like you're playing a computer game. It feels like you're actually playing a board game with your friends. Right. And now you, you have that in your life, and it's, 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 you're getting to see everybody. You're getting to take a little bit of a rest, because I know that you... You you run it, I, I imagine. You run at maximum capacity a lot of the time. At least that's how it looks from the outside, just from your output. Not just, I mean, your social media output and your your, your blog output at different times over the years alone uh, would wear me out, let alone also doing books and, and, and deals and, and everything else on the on the side. Um, yeah, or I feel lazy. Not on the side. I guess. <laughs> I, it feels lazy, um, but... Uh, I, I think when I do things, I do them really efficiently. So um, applying some energy into something, uh, I, I'm sometimes startled at how quickly a thing will come together. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm glad it looks like that from the outside because from the inside, I'm always berating myself for not getting more done with my life. So kudos. <laughs> Save this clip and, and play it back and know that yeah. I... <laughs> I think appearances are more important than reality, I guess. Well, I think uh, I, I heard you say, I don't remember where you said it, but uh, that something that's always made you a success in every job you've ever had is if there's a task that needs to be done, you stop and do it immediately. Because um, I'm always amazed. Like, I, I get emails and like people are lucky to get a response from me in like three days uh, and a, in a good week. And when I email you and I know your inbox has just I must have hundreds, uh, if not thousands per daily emails from, from everything you've got going on, all the writers you, you've got connections with. But I always hear back from you within about 24 hours. How, how do you maintain that while also making time to do all the, the, the board games and the fun things you want to do? It's a good question. I don't know. I, um, like email is something I just fight off as a task. So I'll just sit down and know I'm going to do like 30 minutes or an hour of email. And I'm pretty efficient at it. I'm really quick because I don't put a lot of uh, thought or like editing into it. I'm just trying to communicate and um, you know make things happen. Um, I got an email this morning from a... a friend of mine, a writer, uh, Paulo Bacigalupi, who wrote The the Wind-Up Girl, just phenomenal writer. And I get an email from him, and it's like five paragraphs that are like bringing me to tears. It's like as good as his novels. And I'm sure he just pounded it out. He's just that good of a writer. But I feel like my my emails, I'm often just like whatever Google is suggesting I say, I'm like, yeah, that's close enough. And so like AI is writing my emails for me. But um, I think uh, figuring out which things in life you you should try to do with uh, something close to perfection and then the other things to just like get done. And um, yeah, I, on just chores and daily things, if I see something that needs doing, I know I'm going to do it eventually. And the best time to do it would be right now, because if I do it now, then it gets done and I don't spend any time thinking about having to do it. If I do it later, I still have to do it, but then I also have to spend time thinking about the fact that I have to do it. So now it's like two things or stressing about it, feeling bad that I didn't do it sooner or whatever. So, you know, I think just being logical about it like that, like knowing, okay, there are dishes there. They're going to get washed eventually. I'm looking at them now. Might as well wash them right now. And then it's done before you've even started kicking yourself for not doing them. And uh, I think I picked that up in college with essays. Like I just started, if I got an assignment, I would go on that night and try to write it all in the first night. And um, it, it it stuck and it's, I guess served me well. 
It's a habit I desperately want to acquire. Uh, I, I'm, I'm better than I ever have been because I, I know that, that you do that. And I know some other high efficient uh, people that, that are better at that than me, but it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. Uh, against my own uh, my own zombie instincts, but knowing that, knowing that um, you you jump at things like that, what what changed for you? You mentioned twenty years. You're only doing two chapters. You're going over the chapters. You're not finishing anything. What changed and and why? Um, so what the stuff that I was writing, I didn't I didn't love, and it wasn't until I started uh, critiquing books and going to conferences and and interviewing authors. Um, I was doing a lot of, uh, but you know, you've combined your a writing career with a career of um, uh, being fascinated by publishing and writers and the way you blog about writing and and elevate other people. I was doing the same thing, except I hadn't figured out how to write my own books yet. And um, just spending time around uh, people who are writing, I realized that they um, weren't much different from from me. You know, they had the same kind of background. They 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 weren't. Uh, they weren't special in a way that I thought writers were special. And it was really important for me to learn that, like the, the writer who inspired me to even think about writing as a 12 year old was Orson Scott Card, only because I read in the back of the book that he was from North Carolina, which is where I was from. And before I read that, I didn't know that there could be writers from North Carolina. You know, I'm just a young kid and living in, in the country. And and so, um, I don't know, learning that, that writers aren't these perfect people and they're just, you know, it's a grind. They're what they do is a grind. Um, uh, made me approach writing my first book very differently. The one first one that I completed. And, uh, and I, I'd learned enough through interviewing that they, you know, give, give me advice for someone who wants to write. And I was asking it for myself and pretending like I was asking it for the actual, you know, website I was writing for, but I was asking it for myself. And they would always say, like, just write to the end, um, you know, write rough, don't worry about the quality, just get your draft down. And I heard that advice over and over again. And that let me stop taking myself um, to task for the quality I was seeing uh, on my screen as I was writing. And um, that's still the, the thing that I tell writers when they ask me, like, how, how do I can write my first novel? And I'm like, you, the, the only goal is to write that last chapter. Like whatever you have to do to get to that last chapter, even if it's like, and something happens here and the next chapter and something happens here. And then you get to the last chapter and you write the last chapter. Now you've got a book. It's just, you know, really rough draft. There's not much on the, not much meat on the bones. Now you got a lot to fill in, but now you know your story, you know where it's going to end and you can start filling things in. And that's the roughest way to write a rough draft and revise into a novel. I don't recommend it, but, um, I, I did this myself and I see a lot of writers do this. You write the first few chapters and then it feels easier to revise than it does to write more new stuff. So you just go back to the beginning and keep trying to make this first sentence better and make that first paragraph, the first page better and better and better. And you just revise it until it's mush. And that first page is eventually going to be the most important thing you'll ever write. But to get the novel completed, the last page is the most important thing to have as your goal. And whatever it takes to get there, you just have to have the single-minded pursuit of writing the end. And and when you get there, if what you have is just garbage, that's okay. Now you got something you can work with, you know. And 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 I um, had had to figure that out for myself. And now it's something I try to impart to other people who are having the same struggles that I had. So first draft takes you on average how long then? It's gotten longer. Um, 
the longer I write, the the longer it takes me to write my first draft. My the first book <clears throat> I ever wrote, uh, I I wrote the rough draft in seven days, and it was about uh, seventy five thousand words in seven days. <laughs> and uh, I know I, so I wasn't working. I uh, just stopped I doing. I'm on a podcast. My eyes are bugging out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I hate I hate to admit it. I've gotten I've taken myself. Uh, uh, I used to take myself a little more seriously or try to like fake it, like I knew what I was doing as a writer. So I would not tell people that because it makes it sound like well, you must have written complete garbage. It was some of the best stuff I ever wrote, and I find that the the when I'm writing like five thousand words in a day, that's the stuff that almost needs no editing because you're just locked in the story you're seeing it cinematically and just describing what's going on you're not like stopping to you know read an email or you know do a chore and and come back and get into the flow you're just like um uh, just totally in the flow so uh, i i was writing about 12 to 14 hours a day for that week and was so excited with the story and just could not get enough of it it was like reading a book that you can't put down like a literal page turner and so, uh, yeah, I couldn't stop. And a weekend, I had 75,000 words. Another week of revising, it padded out to about 100,000. And I was looking at a novel that made sense, had good characters, that I loved the storyline. And I couldn't believe it. It was a, a dream I'd had my whole life, a bucket list of, of any bucket list I've ever had, writing a novel was at the very top. And 32 years old, I'd finally done it. And then... I was so excited, like nothing else mattered. I wasn't thinking about publishing. I wasn't thinking about becoming a writer. I was just like ecstatic that I'd written a book and I, I printed it out at Kinko's, you know, like had this big stack of paper, um, sent it to my mom. We went out to dinner that night and I had it on a thumb drive. I made copies of it everywhere, emailed it to everybody just because I was terrified that it was going to disappear. Um, and um, we're sitting at dinner and it's just on a thumb drive on the dinner table and it's my sister uh, a girlfriend and me and my mom and we're having dinner and I just couldn't stop thinking in my head like oh my god I've written a book I've written a book like uh, you just feel quantitatively different in that moment when you realize I didn't feel like an author but I felt like someone who'd written a book that actually made sense and um, that, that was a very vivid feeling there's even um, on the way back home because I was out of town when I put the last polish on it that end of that second week on the way home we were driving through for fast food and i had this impulse to tell the person in the in the fast food line that i'd written a novel and i didn't say it but like it was in my head like i just felt like no one could ever look at me and think i'd written a book and it was so part of this like pride in my chest at the moment that i just wanted to like have it tattooed on my forehead that's how it felt and and ever since then, I've just been addicted to that feeling of bringing worlds that don't exist, like creating them and then finding out that other people want to join you in them and live in them and talk about the characters that you made up. It's just so surreal. And I, I, I love it and have never stopped appreciating that feeling. Are you uh, tempted sometimes to wonder if reality is a simulation? Because I think that, but if I had that experience, the experience that you've had with some of the big events, I, I would definitely start to get more suspicious. <laughs> reality is a simulation. I think, you know, it is weird that everybody sees that we all, our brains are good at looking at patterns and we see the coincidences in life. And I've had some really wild ones. Like if I, um, if I told you some of the things that have happened in my life where like, me and friends have talked about things and then you watch them unfold in the next 24 hours, like bizarre stuff. 
the fact that I remain a skeptic, um, I, I've got friends who are very superstitious. I've got friends who are religious. And when I tell them about some of these experiences, they're like, how are you a skeptic? Like you've got, you've gone through that and that didn't convince you. Um, so I've had some weird things happen. Uh, um, I can, I think the chances are playing 98% that we're in a simulation. The, the odds that we're not in a simulation would be, are very unlikely. Uh, and there's a lot of physicists who, uh, believe the same thing because, uh, we're going to eventually simulate universes, uh, as long as we don't, you know, uh, kill ourselves or go extinct in the next uh, thousand years, we're going to be simulating entire universes on computers. And this is the, the, uh, basis of one of my short stories, the plagiarist. Um, and, uh, any universe that comes into existence is going to simulate other entire universes. So for us to be the real universe, we'd have to be the first one. Uh, every other universe is going to be a made up universe. And we've learned not to give ourselves primacy. You know, the earth was at the center of the solar system. Our solar system is just, you know, three quarters of the way out of a spiral arm of a pretty nondescript galaxy Our galaxy, you know, all these little fuzzy patches in the sky are, are galaxies, not just always stars. Um, we know that, you know, our universe is probably one of uh, an infinite number of universes. And there's just a story uh, today about uh, the possibility that there's, um, we're, we're seeing measurements from a, a parallel universe where uh, the forces of, of physics are a little different. So the idea that we were the first and we're going to simulate all the universes seems unlikely to me. I think it's much more likely that um, you know, where someone's experiment or entertainment or, uh, who knows, it would explain a lot. Would, exactly. Yes. Uh, reading wayfinding, I, I thought I had you, I can never decide if you're quite a pessimist or an optimist because depending on your book, it, it's always a, a little bit somewhere in the middle, I think is the answer. Um, but I would have thought you, you would be a hardcore skeptic, but not at all. 98% chance, huh? Well, I think that is skepticism. I think it would take a, a a huge leap of faith to say that no, we're the original. Um, and you know, that's the same hubris that leads to, uh, religious, um, kind of conversions. But, uh, I think it's, I think it's the skeptic position that, Hey, we're probably all just made up. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's just, I mean, our, our simulations are getting better and way quicker than they should have. We just came up with computers like, you know, 70 years ago and, we're already, um, you know, simulating complex things like nuclear uh, explosions on these uh, massive supercomputers and, and doing weather forecasting that, uh, and, you know, the current chess and go champions are computers. So we're, we're doing things on a pace that even the optimist didn't think we would pull off. Yeah, I like to imagine that when uh, we end up in Blitz and Chips, uh, having just played Roy, uh, for the, the Rick and Morty fans that, that, that know that one, um, when we get out of the uh, simulation, I imagine somebody saying to me, dude, you lived during a time when you started off with Atari, you had Frogger, and then you went on to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. That was right there in front of me. We thought it was a little on the nose that it would give the whole thing away. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah the, hint, the hints are crazy. I, there's so many things that happen in the headlines that I think no author could get away with this. Like You cannot come up with this stuff. And, uh, yeah, it makes me think that there are some writers out there and they're the ones uh, running the simulation. Well, while we're talking about weird stuff, because I'm going to pivot back, I want to talk about your time as a bookseller. And I really want to talk about 
uh, your thoughts on the future of publishing, especially after this major disruption, because there's there's nobody whose thoughts I, I, I trust more. Um, but esteemed audience knows that I ask everybody, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? So while, while we're here. Uh, I've never seen a flying saucer. Um, I've seen things that uh, I didn't know what they were, but I um, the the chances of it being aliens, I think, is like the last thing on the list. There's so many things it could be. Um, it's weird how like we've we've heard that that someone saw something flying and it was moving in a way that no man-made thing has ever moved before. And uh, you know, the the same time people were saying that we were getting um, consumer drones uh, that you know I've gotten quite good at flying. That if you've ever seen someone flying a drone, especially the the pilots that can do acrobatics with them. They defy all laws of physics. So, um, what I, what I find interesting about people that have seen UFOs is um, they try to use, and this is a lot of superstition and religion does the same thing. They use their own ignorance as the, um, and I don't mean ignorance as being stupid. I mean ignorance as in not knowing. Their own ignorance as this magic sauce that gives them perfect knowledge. And how we go from ignorance to perfect knowledge. In the same sentence is so bizarre. So someone will say, I saw something that no one can explain. Therefore, it has to be uh, a biological organism from another star that traveled here in a spaceship that had built and is tor torturing cattle and doing um, experiments. Like they have all these very detailed answers. And it all started from, I saw something that no one can explain. And, and we do this with all kinds of superstition and things in our lives. And I'm comfortable just stopping with the, I can't explain it. You know, I saw something I cannot explain. The end. If you're going to tell us everything about it, then you can, then you have to say like, I saw, you know, visitors from Neptune and their names were uh, Amy and, uh, and Jordan. And they're, you know, like, uh, so um the craziest thing I've ever seen was a, a, a light underwater that made no sense. I was with another captain, and we were, we were going back by it early in the morning uh, before the sun had come up, and we were off of uh, Puerto Rico, and we had been, between the two of us, uh, 30,000 miles underway on boats. We had never seen anything like this. It made no sense. It was underwater, um, and uh, to this day, I, I can't tell you what we saw. Um, but was it aliens? Probably not. But that's all I can say. I have no idea what it was. But why? Not knowing doesn't give me the right to say like it was definitely aliens. It was probably. Yeah, you can say it was definitely not aliens. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but but I can also say it's definitely not not an alien right behind you right now that just happens to be invisible and is like you know. <laughs> or disguised as a bookcase. Who, who knows? It, but why don't you see a why don't you see a light to start just tossing out wild theories and all kinds of silly stuff? Like maybe all aliens are microscopic and they're all around us and you just can't see them because you're not looking hard enough. Like I don't know. It's also weird that aliens are are hiding from us, obviously, because they're not on. We're not interviewing an alien right now. They they wanted to be known. They'd be coming on your. Well, that's podcast, just what someone who podcast. was an alien would say. Would say putting that out there. <laughs> so they're 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 hiding from us, but they. Like their ships have like all the bright lights on, you know, and they, I don't know, they seem really, really stupid and bad. They're always naked. They're never like fluent in languages when they arrive. They just show up and like they stumble around like beep, boop, beep, boop, like 
the, the lack of imagination in the people who believe in these things is a hint that these things aren't real. Uh, if you know, when you see good science fiction, like uh, uh, the arrival or something, and it's like the aliens are truly alien and they're uh, they're they're capable of amazing things. And I we we don't often see that when we have yokels from rural Norway or wherever like coming up with a and the first alien sightings in the fifties. And you know it's all because science fiction was just coming around and people were uh, filling. Uh, unusual sightings with their imaginations and they were pulling from popular culture. Before those alien sightings, it was succubi and incubi and gods and fairies and demons and stuff like that. So we're just uh, filling the void with whatever the, the first thing that pops into our mind that can help explain it. Because we're just uncomfortable saying, I have no idea. And it's, it's much easier and more honest to say that. It's a very strange human instinct. Um, to immediately assume that you know everything about something because you know whatever, and I know I know I'm guilty of it occasionally, I've, especially with writing. If I've learned a new writing technique, my God, I must be the best writer ever. Now I know yeah. all. Yeah, surely. <laughs> it's, it's funny how everyone became an epidemiologist when this thing happened. Like no matter what your expertise was, it was like let me tell you everything about how this virus is gonna like unfold, and uh, you know. Um, yeah, it is weird. We, we, we all just think we're experts at everything. Well, I wrote down a bunch of questions specifically because I knew if I didn't, I would start asking you about aliens and simulation theory and we'd be all over the place. Uh, but I desperately want to ask you and I want to hype uh, Open for Submissions, which came out, I think, in February because I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm pumped about it. I want to make sure we get has two happened and I just didn't see it someplace. No, I'm working on working on two now. I thought I'd be doing them more regularly, but I've been. Uh, it's been a crazy couple of months, just not just because of the, the pandemic and you know getting trapped in Portugal and all this other stuff. But then a lot of um, uh, book related and uh, film and TV related stuff came up. So uh, oh, that wasn't pretty, uh, that, that yeah, wasn't as a, as a scolding. Um, oh no, I'm but I, I, one. I I'm just hoping that we'll get another one yeah. when there's time. I'm hoping by next week. I'm I'm reading the stories right now, so it's a big it's a big job going through a slush pile and reading all the stuff. But uh, I'm blown away by what I'm getting. There's so much talent out there. It's just unbelievable. There's no shortage of uh, of of brilliant writers, and getting these submissions from all over the world is like opening my. You know, I'm reading science fiction from authors from like India and all these other places that have such unique um, uh, stories to tell, and I'm realizing how uh, siloed my reading experience has been. And, uh, you know, it's part of it's because of where I live in the publishing industry, the nature of the publishing industry. We don't get a lot in translation, but, uh, as much as it's, uh, you know, um, kind of sad in some ways to see English pervade other countries, it, it's good as an English reader to see how many people can write in the second language, uh, from other countries and write really well so that we can tap into their, uh, experiences. So it's been amazing. Yeah, I'm working on the second one now, so hopefully we'll get it up soon. Anybody out there, because we're I'm, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about writing advice, but we're not going to get, because you, you you put it up, uh, you put somebody's submission up on screen, and you were doing track changes. While I got the permission. I got the permission first. I would oh, never no, no, I knew you one. did, but I'm like, oh my God, because I, I, I lead a fiction workshop, and I'm like, I should do that. That's, that's, that's brilliant. 
<laughs> so yeah. I hope you keep it going. Uh, however long it takes you between episodes, people understand um, that you, you're working on uh, TV movie deals. You're hopefully working on more wayfinding novels. you got all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, actually, I have. Uh, what I think I've told you this before. I'm upset you to know that I have a couple of wayfinding entries that I've written and never published. But at some point, I, I realized, I don't know, I I was writing these and publishing them for myself, and then people started actually reading them, and that terrified me because I don't feel like anyone should listen to my advice about anything. And these are like things I'm not qualified to write about, like meaning of life kind of questions, which are the ones that keep me up at night, and the ones that I that mull over most often. So I, you know, I want to share my thoughts about it, but if people start taking it seriously, like I get really, uh, um, it, you would think when you when you write something, you'd want a big audience for it, but this is the kind of stuff that getting an audience for it actually really put me off because um, I don't want people just following anything that I say. I just would rather have more of a dialogue about it. So I've gotten more out of having those same conversations with people than publishing them. And I think it's a mistake on my part to do that because the people I've heard from, they've gotten a lot out of it. And I've heard from people that have read the wayfinding entries like several times and they start having, you know, questions about something. They'll go back to one and find some kind of uh, strength from from one of the entries. And that's how that's how I learned these things. Like I would go back and I've read so many books over the years that gave uh, me a better understanding of the world. I just don't. I don't have the self-confidence or the, the uh, hubris that allows me to think that I even deserve to be writing these entries. And that's gotten in the way of me publishing even some of the ones that I've written that aren't out there yet. But maybe I'll change my mind one day. Something will, um, uh, you know, something will um, create a spark that will help me get over that. But right now I'm a little too self-conscious to keep putting those out there. Well, I won't, uh, I won't beg you to publish them. I will say you probably just need the right beta reader and you should send them to me, <laughs> my thoughts, and then my, hopefully the rest of the world gets them. But, but let's, let's look out for number one. <laughs> I'll keep, I'll keep <laughs> in mind. One, one of the ones I've, I've written that um, I was really scared to publish because I, I was raised a Christian, but I'm now an atheist. But I wrote one about uh, Christianity, and at the conclusion of the piece, was that we need more of a good kind of Christianity or religion in our lives. It was not a conclusion that I started off the piece expecting to reach, but there's so much about religion that could be amazing and could be great. And I think um, the the bad parts are self-selecting and reinforcing. You know, they, they're, they're sticky and they're attractive in a way. And the good parts, uh, other, other areas of society have... have taken the burden of some of the good parts, whether it's charities or it's just, um, you know, community and uh, forming um, uh, bonds and relationships with cliques of people that help you in the same way that organized religion does. But there, there's something unique about what religion can provide that I think should be cultivated just in a more secular way that is allows itself to be updated with the times and has more love in it than um, than hate, which is exactly what the New Testament was all about and what Jesus was all about. And, you know, I've, I've read the Bible cover to cover. I did it when I was in my teens. And I it just hurts me to see what religion has become for most organized religions, where it's about the 
the bad bits and not enough about the good bits. So, um, yeah, that's a piece that's, that's still, I, I play with every now and then and it torments me in a way because I, uh, um, one of my thoughts to be a little more coherent, but I'm really shocked at where it ended up. But maybe I'll send it to you and let, let you see what you think and uh, maybe you'll, you know, convince me to publish it. Maybe I'll publish it under... I will definitely enjoy reading it. Name. However, it works out for <laughs> whether you publish it or not. But I, I, I do remember I said this at the time that it, it felt like a secular Bible study um, because you, you were very clear from the start that these are my thoughts. Uh, and as I read, I disagreed with you a couple of times. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember I did it and was like, oh, it's, it's fine. This is not a guru. This is somebody that I'm having a conversation where you're talking and I'm just listening, which is sometimes one of the best conversations you can have. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's the way I like to think about it. But I also got, you know, feedback from people that were, um, you know, it, nothing negative, but some of it just said maybe too effusive or um, e expecting me to have answers that applied to them. And I, I think in the intros of all the entries, it was like, look, this worked for me or this is the journey that I'm on and it uh, might not work for everybody. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think the sailing made me have knocked my ego down quite a bit about having the idea that people need to hear what I have to say. I just don't feel that as much as I used to. Now I feel like more of the student and more someone who just wants to listen and absorb than someone who wants to spout out about things. But um, something, something really happened sailing across the Atlantic where uh, I just became far less in, in awe of myself and far more in awe of my surroundings and, um, I think that change has been semi-permanent and, it, and it's affected my blogging and my, um, uh, you know, my advocacy for giving publishing advice and things like that. Like I, I did a four part publishing series while I was sailing across the Pacific and it was because I had someone like really motivating me to do it saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. And, uh, and I had to work really hard to force myself to do it because I was thinking, of all the people out there who knew more than I did and like, why not just have them do it? And I think something changed in the sailing that made me think there's always someone out there who's already doing what I could do and doing it better. So why, why do that as well? Just do, you know, stay on your own journey and, and try to learn. And uh, yeah, I guess that, that, that change has stayed with me, might, might stay with me forever. Yeah, but I mean, they, they, they might be able to do some things better, but they can't do it the way Hugh Howie would do it. You're, you're the only person that could do the Hugh Howie version of those things, right? Yeah, I guess I, I just don't feel uh, as that, that that is as important as there was, a, there was a time where I thought, and I think I think I might have been right to feel this. There was a time when I thought there's maybe um, 10 or 20 of us that had a platform that really saw uh, where publishing was going to head in a way that could really, we could give advice to authors that would save them a lot of heartache and get them on a path that would motivate them to write more, publish more, um, and, and have a greater chance of success. And I felt an obligation at that moment, like, um, because it wasn't, wasn't just happenstance. Like I was saying, this is what can, is possible for writers and this is what is going to happen for publishing. And then within a year, it happened to me. And so it wasn't just like post hoc reasoning, like, hey, it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. You know, I was on forums and getting laughed out of forums and getting banned from writing forums. 
for being way too like pro self publishing. And um, what was it? Oh, you know, never, never, it's probably not. Yeah, they're, they're yeah foolish. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, they, they're probably those people are probably all self publishing now. Um, it, it's the stigma that comes from being just like close enough to the edge to see like what's around the corner first and like um, a lucky timing, but also the fact that I didn't have the peer network that would have trapped me into a certain way of thinking. And, and one of the, one of my uh, probably biggest assets in my whole life is that I just don't peer pressure just doesn't work on me. Uh, I never, you know, I've been drunk like twice in my life. I don't, I didn't get into the things that other kids got into and people putting something in front of me and saying everyone else is doing it. I'm like, that's fascinating. I'll watch you guys do it. Um, so it's, you know, take living on a sailboat when I was 20 years old was because I didn't, uh, but people said, no, you're supposed to live in a house. I'm like, well, ah, boats are cool. I want to live on a boat. Like I just, my brain is set up where I can make choices and often mistakes that other people won't make. And sometimes, um, latch on to something that works. And I saw really early on, like, uh, before, while I was writing my first books and before I'd even started thinking about how I was going to publish them, that these tools for print on demand and for eBooks meant that publishers did not have, uh, they weren't the gatekeepers anymore, that the real gatekeepers were the first 10, first hundred, first thousand readers that you can get to fall in love with your work. And, going straight to them seemed so logical to me with these new tools that were available. Uh, and uh, yeah, early on in my um, writing career, I felt like I saw something that was working. I was meeting writers all the time who were finding success in the same way. And we're just busy staying in the writing mode and, and enjoying that success and not thinking like, Hey guys, I found something that's pretty cool here. And, and we felt like we were the like the, the the gold rush guys, like moving out west, like hitting the first strikes, and I was one of those people. It's like riding back to the east coast, like pack up your wagon, get your butts <laughs> out here, you know. And I, I really felt uh, a responsibility to um, have people. I, I just saw so many people go in the wrong direction, where they were writing query letters and trying to chase agents and doing the things that were not going to help their career when they could be writing the next book and getting that, that other book out there and just giving it a chance and writing the next book and working on their craft. And, um, yeah, so I, uh, I, I don't feel like I have that knowledge right now where I need to tell people like, Hey, I've got a, a secret to help you out. I think I've said most of what I can on that subject. Okay, well, that makes some of my my next few questions for you a little bit awkward, but we'll. <laughs> we'll I could be wrong though. Like I I I, I did an interview uh, last year and um, on a podcast, and I guess the the podcaster has a big audience, and so I still see people tweeting it and people reaching out to me. I get you know an email a week about people who were inspired from that podcast to write a book. So the I I feel like I have nothing left to say, but every time. I do one of these things. I guess anybody could be here saying the same things, but I still hear from people who get something out of it. So just because I say don't listen to me doesn't mean that you're wrong to put this out on your blog. No, no, no. I, uh, I think I've told you I, I teach a class on the basics of self-publishing, and like a third of my outline is quotes from you, <laughs> from from different things you, you, you've said out loud. Um, I did want to ask, 
because you uh, have had such success with self-publishing, for all those that maybe haven't yet had that success, something that might brighten their day, what's the meanest, most disheartening, Sue Grafton-ish uh, thing somebody has ever said to you about your self-publishing that, that they've not had to go back and eat their words? Oh, we don't want to start, man. It's like my whole career. I've heard, you know, one of the one of my favorite people who who has had a huge impact on my writing career, um, <clears throat> Nadine Carter, my first editor. My very first book was published with a small press called Norlights Press, and I've I've learned there's been like five people in my life that I've learned a lot from when it comes to writing. Nadine taught me a whole bunch because she edited my book and um and edit it in a way that i like to be edited where there's a lot of comments and it's very brutal and it's like this is um, something you're just doing wrong and you need to learn to correct this i learned i learned a lot from her and she gave me my first publishing deal and also let me buy the rights back to that book when i decided i was not going to publish my second book with them but i was going to self-publish instead which is where my heart had been before friends had convinced me you should try to get this published <clears throat> but uh when i when i um, reached out to her. Nadine is like the sweetest person of all time, but uh, it was heartbreaking. And of course, it, it uh, in, a, in an upset place, she said, "This is the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your career." And it was the best thing. I, it was what started my career. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. But that was the kind of battle that I was facing my whole life, uh, my whole writing career. Um, that even the people who were my mentors that I was close to that I consider friends were still telling me uh, not just that that I was having bad ideas, but that my ideas were the worst ideas. And everywhere I went for publishing advice, you know, uh, writer forums that were full of really old school thinking. And I would say like 2007, 2008, about when are we? Yeah, 2000, 2008, 2009. Okay. And um, uh, I think Kindle was like less than a year old. When, when I was like trying to figure out how to publish on it. And um, we came out in 2007, right? The Kindle, something like uh, that. That's right. But um, uh, yeah, so like, I mean, it's pretty logical to me that you, you get good enough at something that people want to represent you. You know, you get good enough at, at playing music and going out and, putting on shows that finally someone in the audience who's scouting for those things comes up and says, Hey, we like what you're doing. We want to represent you. Um, a lot of athletes, they just concentrate on excelling and, and scouts come and look for them and find them and say, Hey, we want, we want you come to our school, you know? Um, and I saw this in other art forms and I thought it's only logical that publishing is going to go this way where people, just put their works out there and keep writing, keep getting better. And readers are the ones who are the slush pile um, um, consumers. You know, they're the ones who are going to be going through all this material and finding what's great. That's going to move itself up these very obscure bestseller lists on Amazon. You might crack the top 100 in a very, you know, um, very specific subcategory. And then agents who are interested in finding like, what's exciting will look in those places rather than me writing a letter, a query letter, the query system just made no sense to me when I started digging into it. I'm like, this isn't, isn't how things should be done. And bringing up the way I thought things were going to go and what made no sense. Um, yeah, it just got, 
a lot of people like really heated and upset because they were they've been struggling through this process for a long time and saying there might be a better way was not what you want to hear. So I have uh, way too many stories about what people said back then, and it turns out that you know their way still works. A lot of people still query and they go through that process, but a lot of my friends who are making a living at writing were just just self publishing and just concentrating on reaching readers and telling good stories. And eventually they got enough success that someone reached out to them and said, hey, we want to elevate your career and publish you in this other way. And they can decide then whether to take representation or do a publishing deal. Um, so somehow, like, I just got lucky and saw the right thing and uh, before it had happened. And that made me really unpopular in a lot of circles. Well, people might be difficult for some folks that have come to writing later that don't remember how it was when we all read Writer's Market, and that was the word of God. That's how it gets done. I remember I told uh, when Susie K. Quinn uh, and I were critique partners before either of us had published anything. She said, I think I'm going to self-publish. And I wrote her a long letter, said, oh, my God, Susan, don't do this. You're throwing your life away. Uh, and, and of course, when I had her on the show, I had to eat crow. And like, uh, yep, I couldn't, couldn't do any more wrong. So glad you're making six figures a month some months. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, you know, the interesting thing now is uh, I, I've done some deals with books that were self-published and now I'm publishing them with publishers because I can make decisions that aren't purely financial. I can just do fun things and, and try other avenues. Uh, coming up on five years of the wool contract sometime this year when you'll yeah. get your back. So I got them. I got the rights to wool back, wool shift and dust all back Um late last year and did a deal um, with uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt or Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, and they're re-releasing, I think just this this week, they're um, taking over the eBooks and doing uh, a new print edition that will come out uh, later this year, a box set, all kinds of stuff. They haven't even announced, so um, you're the first person to, to hear about it. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's an exciting, exciting deal because uh, we'll we'll find a new audience. But it's also another time limited deal that in uh, in five years we'll reevaluate and see what we want to do. And I think um, some of the early conversations uh, I had with uh, some of my self publishing mentors, they said this is the future where you you don't give lifetime rights to anything because you just don't know what they're worth. You can't you can't value books that never go out of print anymore. So those are the kind of deals I like to do now where like, yeah, we'll do a deal, but it's for this number of years. It doesn't matter what the sales are when that happens. The books and rights come back to me and then we can reevaluate. And one of those deals, um, the book didn't earn out and and uh, underperformed. And so we just gave them an extension. Like, we'll just keep it for another two years. And so it's not about trying to screw over publishers. Uh, it's just about being fair and being able to get the rights back means you can reevaluate and make decisions based on um, sales and how things are going. Do you ever foresee a time when you would take it back and say, okay, it's all coming back to the Howie house now. Uh, and you, you just, I know this isn't a, a religious quest for you. I, I'm always uh, stunned by people that I'm a religiously questing for self-publishing. I'm not, uh, but you'll see, I have uh, editors and literary agents on here on a regular basis. I'm happy with people that like books. I want to talk books. They're all interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but um, can you see yourself going back to completely on your own? Or at this point, are you? is it so large, especially once potentially a TV show comes out uh, or whatever else might happen? I mean, can, can one person manage the, the Howie empire? 
Yeah, it's not uh, it's not that hard. You know, you, once you upload the PDF and the ebook, things take care of themselves. Um, you know, the retailer Amazon especially just does most of the hard work for you. Um, so uh, there's not a lot of you don't have to do point of sale stuff. You know, you get one um, doing your taxes at the end of the year is pretty easy. It's it's not that difficult. Uh, I still think of my every time I write something, I'm like, I'm going to self publish this first, and we'll see if publishers come along afterward. So uh, John Joseph Adams and I are, are coming out with the th uh, three anthologies uh, next month, um, these uh, dystopian uh, triptych works that I've contributed to and, and edited all the stories for. And um, it was no question that we were going to self-publish them. And I'm sure if we shop them around, we could get deals, but that's just not what we're interested in. We just want the stories out there in the way that we want to, to tell them. And we did that with an, another uh trilogy of anthologies um, about five or six years ago and we've you know had um, publishers come after us since then and TV and film offers and stuff and we're just happy kind of doing our own thing and and the authors have been happy with the uh, the results some of them have made more money from that anthology than they normally make with their self with their uh, you know majorly published short stories. So for me, every project starts as a self-publishing project, and then uh, my agent or publisher will get involved and sometimes come up with something that's enticing. But uh, I still think self-publishing first is the way to go. I mean, is it is it even uh, feasible for you to sit down and have a conversation with an editor or publisher that says, Hugh, we love this aspect of your novel, but we want you to change the main character. We want you to change the final act and three other things. Is that even a conversation that you would entertain at this point? I would. I would. I love collaborative, um, uh, the collaborative creative process. I love it a lot. So I'd, I'm happy to have conversations like that. But I've never, I never. It hasn't been my experience that publishers have those conversations. Um, and at least not with me. They'll either pass on it or get excited about it. Uh, you get some editorial feedback, but if it's something that major, often there's other stuff in their their slush pile that they're more interested in. So they'll usually just pass and uh, move on. But uh, yeah, I my experience so far has been that people get excited about something I've already published, and they they see the sales history is pretty good, and so they just want to they don't want to change too much, and they keep it as is. I did have um, a really cool experience with. Uh, an editor, uh, Jack Fogg, and, and uh, he was with uh, Random House UK when I did my big wool deal with them before I had done any deals in the US. And he thought that we needed um, uh, a scene with Juliet and some of these characters earlier on in wool. And, uh, you know, this is my doing an essay the night that it's due. He was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe just a, a paragraph or two in one of these early chapters. And that night I wrote like what became chapter 13 of Wool, like wrote an entire chapter. It is one of my favorite chapters. I think it's one of the, the best uh, pieces of work in the, in, and so he's, he's in England and he sends me this email and goes to sleep and he wakes up the next morning because I've been working all day while he's sleeping. And he wakes up, not thinking he'll even hear back from me. And he's got a, like all this entire chapter and it blew his mind, but also blew my mind. And I loved getting that editorial feedback made the, the story so much stronger. And uh, so I relish that, those kinds of opportunities. I've done a, a couple of writing rooms uh, for adaptations and just being in a room with really smart people that are geeking out about the same world and the same story and, and you're molding all these things out of raw clay. It's, it's so exciting for me. I, 
I think that's where I belong actually in this um, storytelling world right now. I probably just belong in LA just working in writing rooms all day. I just love it. Can't get enough of it. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to work. I just feel like a kid in a candy store every day. And you're, uh, I, I guess we can only hint, but I know AMC theoretically has a, a series that might could come to be that might be silo themed. Is that yeah. enough to confirm? I don't know how much I don't know how much I can can talk about it. AMC is actually involved in two different books right now in a weird way. Like uh, um, they're involved with Beacon Twenty Three and Wool, and um, not in a way that I f- foresaw. Like uh, um, you, you can you can do a deal with someone, and you think it's going to come out on their channel, and then they say, "Hey, we could partner with this other studio or this other." network and then we would be the creative side and they would uh maybe release it on their channel and it would be an even bigger audience and bigger budget and all this stuff and you're like yeah let's partner up and now you're working with two people you're really excited about and so that's happened on two projects so far and one of them we went to amc to start with and now it's like amc and the creative side which is like the best in the business as far as i i'm concerned some of the best storytelling minds out there and but the launch side's going to be like an even bigger deal, and that that has a really good chance of going forward. Like we have a pretty much a blinking green light on that now, and a great script and amazing uh, first season mapped out, and unbelievable team behind it. Like that have made some of the best TV out there. Uh, I wish I could tell you more, but uh, that's looking really promising. And then another project that it started with somewhere else, and now might come out on AMC, so they uh, are having the opposite kind of relationship with that book. So uh, un- unbelievably uh, excited to be working with them in, in both aspects. And that other one has been greenlit, and supposedly the writing room is starting up in just a few weeks. So I'm in this weird state where, you know, so I could- can confirm that that other one is iZombie and the Walking Dead guys are joining? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I don't know how you, you know, I don't think you can make a, an eye. I know there's an eye zombie TV show based on a comic, but I don't, I think the zombies can talk or something. I haven't seen it, but uh, um, I don't know if you can make my book into a, into a show. It's such a weird book. I'm, I'm shocked that people read it, but cause it's so it, by necessity, it's all internal monologue, but uh, I love writing it. And it's been, it's been like a, a popular book with a bunch of people. So Strange. So, so Sand, Beacon 23, and Wool are the three that are really moving along the most right now in development. Like all three seem like they're, um, and I've always said 100%, nothing's ever getting made. I never get my hopes up um, uh, because it's just so hard to get anything made. But, you know, now I'm looking at three different projects that all probably have like a 10% chance of getting made, which seems like an, an astronomical, uh, on the positive side, uh, odds for me. So, um, yeah, it's pretty much one of the reasons I'm in the States for the next couple of years to try to shepherd these things forward and give them the best chance possible. Cause you don't get to choose when this happens to you. Like, you know, you can't say like, I want to make a movie. And then Hollywood's like, okay, let's do it. Like you, if, if, if they pounce on something, you should just be ready and, and enjoy that ride for as long as it goes. And I'll tell you, you haven't asked this question, but I'll tell you my thoughts on that. Um, uh, when it comes to working with people in adaptations like this, you should just enjoy every step for what it is. I've gotten to, you know, 
go talk to studio heads and be in their offices, which is full of like sci-fi props and see like, you know, the original aliens outfits and like all this crazy stuff and, and trying to keep your cool. And like, I'm not going to geek out like hanging out with the bad robot, you know, lobby and like, you know, playing with other toys while you're waiting for your meeting and, um, just really, really cool stuff. And, um, uh, while I'm there, I'm not thinking if this doesn't get made, I'm going to be upset. I'm thinking, holy crap, they let me in this building. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, where I'm signing a, a deal for this option on this. And someone's going to pay me for just to sit on this story. And then like, oh my God, they hired this incredible writer to adapt it. And I'm getting to like hang out with them and talk about how we would do it. And then, oh my God, they wrote this amazing script. And so every, and then sitting in writers. Room, hang out with Steven's alien for a while? Yes, well, we uh, we didn't become you know close buds, but we um, uh, he was in on the original deal with Ridley Scott for Wool, so we got to uh, communicate. But he's he's on the next level. Um, I, I've become friends with uh, people that I never thought I'd become friends with, and just like being around them and their genius is so inspiring. But um, uh, I, probably my one of my dearest. Uh, my favorite people in Hollywood that I actually like get to hang out with is, uh, um, well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk about it cause it'll embarrass him, but I feel really lucky that like through, through writing a book and getting, uh, you know, striking lightning with it, I've been able to hang out with people who are a lot smarter than I am and, and just absorb stuff from them. Yeah, it shows I'm a rookie. I shouldn't have thrown out a specific name because what was everybody else? Chop liver. <laughs> they're, they're all fantastic. But Larry, I'm, well, um, uh, yeah, Zalian's just this. Uh, he's a legend among legends. Like he's he's people pay him seven figures just to like tweak a script to get it over the the hump. Like he's and you're getting paid and you get to talk writing with him, right? Yeah. Well, I yeah. And the other, I mean, there's just so many smart people out there. It's crazy, but. But uh, um, the, the entree you get when you start doing these deals and the people who are uh, shepherding these projects forward, um, I like the first person to adapt sand, they uh, ended up going with a friend of mine, someone that I was like helping them publish their first book, uh, Gary Witta, who I'm a fan of from his PC gamer days. Like I was in college, like building my first computers and reading the PC gamers that he edited. And he contacted me because of my self-publishing advice and said, hey, I wrote a book. It's called Abomination. It's amazing. You should read it. And he was like, how should I publish it? And I, we just really hit it off and formed a friendship. And then later, I had a company that was adapting Sand. And they were like, we're chasing this screenwriter and we love him. And we don't know if we can get him or not. And we won't even tell you who it is in case we don't. And this went on for months. And they finally like, we finally did the deal. And it's like, it's Gary Weta. And I'm like, Gary and I are, are like good friends and you could have like put us together in the room and we would have made this happen months ago. But, you know, he wrote this amazing uh, screenplay and I've learned so much from about the industry from, uh, you know, I don't know people who don't know him. He wrote uh, the book of Eli, which is incredible uh, with Denzel Washington. He wrote uh, uh, Rogue One, which is one of the best Star Wars films. Um, I rank it probably number three in all the Star Wars films that have been made. So just a genius guy and no way I should ever be friends with this guy, but somehow because of um, the way my career has unfolded and getting to do these adaptations, like you get to learn from them. So just an example of like the, the ways that I feel like out of my league and uh, on a different planet sometimes with all the stuff that's happened. 
a quick aside for frustrated listeners, if we say number three, what are two and one for Star Wars? I think The Empire Strikes Back for me is number one. So, but that's episode episode five for me is my favorite. Uh, and episode four, even though it's campy and innocent in a lot of ways, it's um, I don't know, like it's it was so foundational to me as a kid. It's like where we meet Luke and uh, meet Han and Chewie and like all these unbelievable characters and um, uh, all the possibility of the universe, Star Wars universe is still there. I rank Han's the the, the Solo the um, on Solo prequel really highly. I thought it was amazing. I don't. I didn't understand people who were kind of lukewarm about that. Uh, so yeah, my top three uh, are Episode Five, Episode Four, and uh, Rogue One. And uh, yeah, I'm not even sure what what four would be. Um, there's there's three stand head and shoulders for me for storytelling above the rest. Makes sense to me. I think, I think my list probably falls about similar, although I'm easy to please with Star Wars. I frustrate people because I don't hate Phantom Menace the way they hate Phantom Menace. But yeah, there's parts of it that are done, but did you see the Star the lightsaber fight at the end? It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are parts of the prequels that I really like. I just, um, yeah, I wanted so much more out of them. And the one thing I really couldn't figure out is how these stories were older, but then all the like technology was shinier and newer. Like, I, I feel like it was because the the CGI had had grown so much that it became a uh, a series of movies that looked like they take place after the originals rather than before them. And I don't think you can account for the degradation of the Empire to explain all of that. I think it was just running a little too wild with their imagination and pushing the boundaries of what they could show with CGI. I wish it would have stayed like a little grittier and more raw like the originals. So that shocked me when I just saw how gleaming and, and shiny the whole thing was. and um, Yeah, so it, it was hard for me to uh, suspend disbelief for a lot of it. Also, oh, there's a single one of them where I don't have at least one little complaint or, or whatever, yeah. but I always feel like a spoiled child. Like, oh, you had a complaint? Did you get to see an amazing film with the most amazing That's true. You have to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like an incredible roller coaster, and you like you're upset that the uh, the handlebar is a little too sticky. Um, I think the the hardest thing is that you know Han didn't even believe in Jedi's. No one believed in the Force. It was like because no one was out using the Force. But then you watch the prequels, and there were Jedi's, and the Force was everywhere. And it wasn't that long before. We're talking like you know thirty years earlier. So how? How did we go from having like Jedi councils and Jedi everywhere and the force was like all over the place to 30 years later, no one believes it existed. So yeah, that could be a little bit dark on that just because of the time we've been living through and I've seen the effect on propaganda on so many of our fellow citizens. 30 years of hardcore empire propaganda, Jedi's were a myth, they never happened, it's fake news. Eh. Uh, maybe. I, I, I think the universe could be swayed a bit. Maybe. Maybe that also um, explains what happened to the fancy, shiny yellow ships. They're like, no, people people were filled with too much optimism and hope while they were cruising around in those things. We got to replace them with these square bulky things. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the what's going to be great is like in 100 years, they're going to retell the Star Wars stories. They're going to like, you oh, know, make them, make them from scratch several times over. I mean, how many Spider-Mans and Batmans have we gotten in Supermans? Not and, enough. <laughs> not enough i agree people are like we don't need another comic book movie like just don't go go don't go see it i'm gonna go see it i'm gonna see all of them like i there could be a new superhero film every week and i'm gonna find time to watch it like people complaining 
Um, these are some of the same people that loved Westerns and they used to make like a thousand of those a month. Um, but I can't wait for them to tell the Star Wars story that could be a hundred years from now and not make some of the same mistakes that they've made with the, the prequels and sequels. Oh, but there will always just be somebody that's uh, upset about something. I think part of what happens is uh, we've grown up with Star Wars. So like the original trilogy, I mean, just because I had all the action figures, I was a kid enjoying them. You know, the, the, the prequels, the J.J. Abrams verse, they, they can't replicate that because I'm older. Although I must say The Force Awakens, that uh, I felt like it, it, it time traveled me. It's one of the few things that's ever done that. That first trailer where, uh, you know, we knew Harrison Ford was going to be in the movie. But the first time he and Chewie step out of the Millennium Falcon, like something in my huh. heart just hurt. Like, oh, my God. I, I forgot this person was in here that knew yeah. so much. Yeah, it was amazing. It's powerful. You know, but I, I had that I had that feeling just seeing those people in person. I was in uh, Hall H at um, at Comic Con in San Diego before the first of the um, new movies came out, and all the original actors were on stage, like everybody uh, from the old movies, and then all the new actors from the new new trilogy. And I was with my sister, and we're like the biggest Star Wars geeks, and we were screaming like the Beatles had come out in in the '60s, like we were losing our minds. And yeah, so all you have to do is put put uh, Han Solo on the big screen, and I'm going to go nuts. You can don't have to tell a story; just have him walking around, like making coffee, and I'm going to go crazy. So that was a pretty easy. That was a pretty easy. Were reassembled in another hall, but if the Star Wars cast is there, then the Beatles can wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly how we felt. That was an amazing experience, by the way. One of the best days of my life. At the end of the uh, the presentation, uh, JJ got at the podium and said, okay, we're going to do something a little unusual. Now, Hall H, people camp out for two days to get into Hall H, and you just you just sit there and watch whatever panel comes out. You don't leave your seat because you don't want to miss anything. And, uh, and my sister and I were in there, and JJ gets up at the end of the talk, and he's like, we're going to do something a little different now. Anybody who wants to leave, and everybody's like, we're not leaving. We're staying for the next panel. He's like, if you want to leave, You'll exit these doors, and you're going to get a special lanyard, and we're going to walk across the street to the amphitheater, and we've we've roped it off, and the uh, the San Diego uh, Philharmonic is going to play the original score, and we're going to have like everyone on stage, and we're going to show some clips from the upcoming movie, and there'll be food and drinks for everybody, and everybody's going to get a lightsaber, and we all lost our collective minds, like. The whole, all of Hall H cleared out, and I felt terrible for the panel that came up next. Like, and of course, there are people waiting in line to fill up the place, but we just couldn't believe it. We walked out the gate and got these lanyards and got a glow-in-the-dark lightsaber, and we went, and there were fireworks, and they played music, and like, just from being in the right place at the right time, and uh, one of the one of the absolute best experiences of my life. And to have my sister there for it, like, we... Uh, we we just laid in the grass and drank beers and ate hot dogs and watched uh, um, clips of our favorite film and heard the best score probably ever written and yeah. Of sci-fi has that diminished your love of science fiction and all the all the things you're a fan of in any way? What's that being? As being you know, being well is you know it's 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 canon. It's it's there with with Alien with Star Wars. I'd put it up against Ender's Game. So does being a part of the party in that way and having a perspective with all the people who aren't Steven's alien you've, you've had conversations with, 
does that diminish your fandom in any way or does it strengthen it or does it remain the same as it ever was? It, I, to me, it feels the same because I don't uh, think of, um, I don't think of wool in that same way. I'm still shocked. Like when I go into bookstores and it's still there and I've had people explain to me, like, this is one of those perennial books now that's like, um, and I, I can't even put it in this. I, I'd hate saying this, but other people have told me this. It's like, this is like Dune, and they say it because Dune's usually shelved right near me. Herbert and Howie are like close enough, but they're like, if you go to a bookstore in 30 years, there'll be like one copy of Wool on the shelf just in case. And that's bizarre to me because I worked in bookstores forever, and books lasted six months. That's the only chance they got. So I, I'm i blown away by that, but by the, the fact that this might be one of those perennial books that just kind of hangs around. It's a huge honor, but uh, yeah, for some reason, it just doesn't feel real to me at all. It, it, it's that uh, imposter syndrome. It feels like at any moment it could all disappear and be taken away. So um, I, I still feel like the same fan that I've always been towards this stuff. And sometimes I see what's happening with my stuff and it just I feel like I'm an observer, like it's happening to somebody else. Does it at least give you confidence when you sit down to draft something new that, hey, here, here's Hugh Howie, author of Wool, for sure accomplished this much? Or does it fill you with more anxiety because will this be as good as uh, whatever the last thing was? Um, I would say probably more anxiety, but I, I, I don't think anything will ever have the effect that Wool had. So I don't, I don't try to replicate that or, or, or try to achieve that. I, you know, I th my best writing happens when I'm writing for myself, and that's the mind space I get in, which is why I don't publish a lot of the stuff that I write now. Like, I'm just fu having fun and writing for the pleasure, and, and things just sit on my hard drive, and I go back and toy with it. But there's, uh, I don't have that uh, impulse to like make everything available anymore. What, uh, what changed, do you think? I don't know. You know, I was at a, I was at a, um, a book, uh, a BEA, what do they, what's that stand for? Book uh, Expo of America or something? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the big uh, big BEA event in New York at the Javits Center. And um, I was part of a, uh, a, a group of self-published authors who had all had a certain amount of success. And we got a booth together there, which had never been done before um, uh, because they're not cheap. And, you know, authors just don't do that. They don't spend that kind of money on, on promotion. So... We were getting some interest from people. They're really shocked that that here was a group of authors who were all having success publishing. And at the time, I didn't even qualify to be in the booth with these other authors. Um, uh, they, as I was, in some ways, the biggest name there because of some of the media coverage I'd gotten. But I was making less money than they were because they were mostly romance writers, and they were killing it. And uh, everyone there had sold like millions of books and made millions of dollars. And I think their criteria to, to put this thing together were people that had made a certain amount of money with publishing. And then they realized that no male author qualified and they needed some diversity. So I was their diversity hire. <laughs> they were like, we, we need a guy, like who will do it? And I was friends with a couple of them and they're like, Hugh, will you do this? I was like, sure. And then I found out later, I, I would, I, you know, it was like um, getting into college because like you are, you know, the, the uh, ethnicities that they want to like check the box. Like that's what happened to me. I, I basically was reverse discriminated against. So I would take it any leg up I can get as a white man, like whatever advantage I can get in this world. 
because it'll come often. Um, so I, I'm in this. That, that booth. was tongue in cheek for anybody that's clipping. That was that was sarcasm. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, I was standing there with this person, um, uh, this this writing couple, right under the name uh, Jacinda Wilder, and dear friends, and and they had were going to miss their mortgage payment. Um, when a book of theirs, the first one that took off, they've been writing and, and working really hard for a long time. And there were so many times they should have given up. And they were not sure how they're going to make their mortgage payment. They had kids and all kinds of stuff going on. And their book took off and it made enough money this month, this one month to make that payment. And then from there, their career just took off. And their story to me was one of the most amazing things in publishing and no one was really covering it. And I was standing in, in this booth and like uh, a TV producer came up with their cameras and they were going to do this big like interview with me. And I had nothing to, to say that was more incredible than this story that was beside me. And this was something that I knew was going on in the publishing world at the time. I was collecting accounts and stories from other writers that were having amazing things happening to them. And, and I couldn't believe how many of these stories were just unknown. And so I remember at the time just saying like, uh, just thinking about their story versus what they, the answers they wanted uh, out of me, this, this interview. And I was like, let me tell you what you guys should do. You should do a story on these guys. Cause what they're doing is unbelievable. You won't believe the, the coincidences and the success. It'll make, uh, it'll make you cry. Uh, if I tell you my story, you'll cry from boredom. And the cameras turned onto um, the couple that write us, Jacinda Wilder. And, um, and I remember thinking like, that was, uh, they, they took a one for me because I didn't have to do the, the interview. The, the, the story was much better than it would have been if it was about me. But I realized that anytime that uh, I've had so much luck and so much time in the sun, anytime I can deflect and say, there's so much going on out there. There's so many great stories to read, so much to do. Um, so... Uh, I guess by not publishing everything that I write, it's also my way of saying like, there's just better books out there to read. I give people out when they find out I'm a writer, they say, well, what should I read? And I'm like, I start naming all my favorite books. None of them are mine. And they're like, no, what of yours should I read? And honestly, I just can't suggest over other people's stuff, like something of mine anymore. I feel like I've been too lucky. The universe needs to balance out. Everyone else needs to get, they're due, and then maybe you can come back around to me once everyone else has had a lap. And I feel that. I've, I've lived and breathed that for years now, and I've gotten more enjoyment out of trying to elevate other people than promoting my own stuff. That is one of my, uh, I promise, I, I, I took a pledge not to get too butt-kissy, but that is one of my favorite things about you is consistently over the years, your whatever you're writing, whatever you're talking about, it's always going to be turned around and reflected, if not on somebody you know, on the person listening, on on people that you can inspire to go and do, if not re replicate your your success, to have a version of success that's going to fulfill them and, and and make them happy. Are you comfortable with the level of fame that you've achieved? I would love to have your readership. I don't know that I would want your fame. That looks like a lot. I, I it doesn't. You know, it's really weird because. Uh... It's a dumb, it's it's not a good thing that we don't have as many people reading as we do watching TV and um, watching films. So you can be like kind of a big deal in a small community, but you're, it doesn't make you a big deal. Like I, um, you know, I've 
maybe three times in this last year, I've had someone recognize me out on the street. Um, that's like less than the number of times I bump into people that I know just walking around New York who are friends, you know? So it's not, I don't feel any kind of, um, are you in celebrity or fame. Or... <laughs> no, like, but, but no one, no one knows what any writers look like. Like I would, I would only recognize a handful of writers and I'm a big time reader. It's just, it's the best kind of fame to have. If you go to a book conference, everyone knows who you are because that's the community of people that follow these things. Um, whether they don't might not recognize your face, but they know your name, they read your badge. I'm like, oh, I know what you've written, or I've I've read an interview with you. But um, and the general public, like authors, are just completely anonymous worldwide. Maybe I've sold a like I don't know three to five million copies or something. That's like almost nothing. And um, when it comes to the you know general population, I mean it's everything. But when you have aspirations of being a writer and hoping to get 10 people to read your book. Um, so I don't feel famous at all, like at all. And I'm always in shock when uh, when we were in Portugal, we were sitting at a restaurant and I start talking to someone like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm a writer. And so I moved here. I'm like, oh, my God, what do you write? And she's talking about all of her writing and publishing or just geeking out about stuff. And and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I used, I used to be a writer, too. And then um my girlfriend was like, yeah, it's like Hugh Howie, he wrote Wool. And she's like freaking out, like, oh, my God, I loved Wool. And and so when that kind of stuff happens, it still shocks me. I'm like, holy shit, you've read my book? Like, it just seems weird to me. So I guess, I don't know. I'm, I still, Nine yeah, years I'm, later with yeah, a, with a absolutely. contract and how many, what, I think it was over 15,000 reviews on, on Amazon. I guarantee most of the people watching this, uh, have never heard of me. You know, they're coming on and they're like looking for the next author that you're interviewing and they're like, who's this guy? And I love that. I think it's, I'm more comfortable that way than I would be uh, any other way. So well, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I would be far more comfortable that way. I am far more comfortable not being famous, but it surprises me that uh, I, I would think that you, you must be like hounded by people like women throwing underwear <laughs> at you. Hugh Howie, oh my God. <laughs> no, I, live in, I live in Chelsea, man. If anything, it'd be men throwing their underwear at me. That's true. <laughs> well, let's see. I want to be responsible and respectful of your time because I know that you're endlessly generous and you will let me talk your face off forever. Uh, but I desperately want to talk with you about iZombie. And I want to, I still want to talk a little bit about quarantine and maybe we'll think about calling a night while we're still having fun. Does that sound like a reasonable plan? Sure. Sounds great. So iZombie is the book. I, I don't I don't say it's my favorite because it's like, uh, okay, yeah, Captain America Winter Soldier is my technically my favorite of the Marvel movies, but we all know I cried at Endgame. It was it was also great. Um, so at the end of the day, we're we're having a good time. If it's sand, if it's if it's uh, Beacon Twenty Three, I'm having a good time. But when I talk to people, if they say I've never heard of Hugh Howie, I say read Wool. If they're already reading wool, and I'm, you know, uh, prior to quarantine, I was substitute teaching, and I would, I would get a little thrill when I would see somebody carrying around the, the, the Marvel graphic novel or a copy. Of, oh my God, I, I know him online. He's my internet friend, <laughs> uh, and I'm very excited that you're, you're reading that. And I, I will always say, okay, well, if you even like that, have you tried iZombie? Because I, I, you're just trying to turn them I off of the rest of my books. Say it's my favorite, but it might be my favorite. Wow, I figure you're just trying to like. Turn them off of all of my other books. <laughs> yeah, clear them out now. Read my stuff. <laughs> I, I was I was at a I was at a breakfast with like uh, the head of a, one of the major publishers, um, and we're talking about uh, publishing stuff. And I didn't think this person had read any of my any of my stuff. They're just sitting beside me, 
and we're talking about publishing. And and in a break in the conversation, this guy leans over and he says, uh, "You know, I've, I've read all your stuff." And I'm like, "Holy mackerel! That's um, that's a a lot to read." And why are you reading my stuff? And then the next sentence was, "I Zombie was my favorite." And I was like, "What?" And I was a sh- I was like shocked that this person had read it and kind of was then embarrassed because I knew they had read like some of the grossest stuff I've ever written. But then they said, "Like, it's your most literary work." And I was like, what is happening? This is like, you know, it was the head of one of the major six publishers who was saying, like, I Zombie was a literary, my, my great literary work. And I was like, whatever. It just didn't make any sense. I think I think about that book at least once a month. If it's a bad month, maybe three times. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking, oh, what'd you do again? Can't you, you played games all night. It's me, Zombie. I did it again. And then I'll turn to my wife. I'm like, did I ever tell you? So, yes, I zombie by two hours. You told me about it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you think that of those of us that that truly love it? Because it's a punishing book. And it it doesn't have a straightforward uh, narrative. uh, But it's endlessly captivating. What what is it about that book, you think, that that does so appeal to people? I think even if... We're not any of, there's a lot of characters in the book. And even if we're not one of those characters, there's something about our own life that we see in that same trap. It's been one of the biggest revelations for me as um, as a human is realizing that I don't have free will. And that shakes you to your core. Like losing religion was harder for me. Like losing religion was probably second on the list. Losing Santa Claus was third. And apologies to any of your young viewers who might still believe in Santa Claus or Jesus. I apologize to all of them. But losing the belief in free will is absolutely number one of my great disillusions in life. And um, coping with that was difficult. And that book was my, really my ode to like how difficult that transition has been. Um, And there's one character in that book that doesn't feel like they have any free will, but they feel if they try as hard as they can, they can steer this body a little bit off of its predetermined path. You know, if they, they just feel like they're leaning into the skull of this this uh, creature they're inside of, and they're able to get it to get off the rails a bit. And that's how I feel a lot of times. Like, you know, all I want to do are, like, repeat certain mistakes or bad habits, and overcoming those requires an intense force of what feels like willpower, but it's just a, a slight deflection from your original path. Um, and... Free will would mean that whatever we want to accomplish in life, it's just easy. If I want to sit down and write all day, I sit down and write, and I'm never distracted by the internet or uh, anything else. If I want to, you know, exercise one hour every day, I decide that, and then next thing I know, one hour every day I'm exercising. And that's not reality, you know. Every New Year's, people make all these resolutions, and by February, most people have given up on them. And that's the reality of, of our lack of free will. And... Um, yeah, so I Zombie is a book about that. And what I've learned is for myself, might not be true for anyone else, is as soon as I accepted that I didn't have free will, I got more control over myself and more understanding of my behavior than I ever had before, which took away so much of the frustration of watching yourself behave in a way that you're uh, sometimes don't agree with and feel like you don't have any control over. And so it's uh, the hardest lesson of my life and the most useful. And maybe there's something in that book that, that has that same combination of, of horror and revelation. 
So just recognizing the position you're in and how hard it is to fight against that, to, 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 scare, to, to, to steer your zombie uh, off course just a little bit makes, a, makes enough of a difference that you're not wallowing and, and thinking, my God, I'm surrounded by zombies, so I just can't. <laughs> yeah. If, if you were a puppet, the best, the, the worst and best thing that would ever happen to you is, is seeing the strings for the first time. And um, it would be horrifying at first, but then things would start to make more sense. And then you could maybe um, try to learn how to, to uh, take more control of those strings. And I think assuming you don't have them is, is confusing and difficult. Like that's why uh, falling back into bad habits is so painful for people. I've, I've read accounts of people who uh, struggle with their weight, who find themselves uh, binging, eating food and, hating themselves at the same time, crying while they're eating ice cream. And that conflict of not knowing where these struggles come from and why they exist and what we can do is more tragic than the actual struggle itself. You know, it's the, it's that internal damaging spiral of monologue that really um, uh, hurts people more than the actual bad behavior they started with, I think. Something I wondered about uh, this week, because I've been doing a kind of a Hugh Howie mixtape. It's, it's been a week of revving up, knowing I was going <laughs> to uh, chat with you. Uh, so I've got all my Hugh Howie audiobooks, and I've been listening to a bit of each one. I've, I've been listening to iZombie. And as we go through it, there are characters who did terrible things prior to the zombie apocalypse. Uh, they're all doing, of course, terrible things once they're zombies. Uh, and characters that did, you know, noble things. And it doesn't feel like the author... Um, gives the noble characters a break or overly punishes the characters that maybe kind of could have it coming. Is that intentional or am I just reading that, reading that into it? No, that's deliberate. And um, I'm uh, flattered that you, you pick up on that, but I, to, I think that's life and reality. I remember my mom, her mantra growing up is that life wasn't fair. You know, be like, well, she, my sister got to do that or my brother got to do that or why? And she would say, like, you keep expecting life to be fair. And that's why you're confused and whining all the time. Life is not going to always be fair. And um, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And it doesn't mean we should accept it. But it also means that we should, um, we shouldn't accept it, but we should probably expect it. And, uh, yeah, so that was definitely something I wrestled with with the book, that we all end up in the same place. We all end up trapped. A lot of people who are good can't help but be good. That's who they are. That's how they were born. It's the environment they grew up in and all the experiences and, and influences they had in their life led to them being a good person. And um, giving them credit for it is okay in some ways, but it's also giving them uh, more agency in what they've become than they probably deserve. Um, it's the most challenging conversation you can have with anybody when you get in philosophy and 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 bring this up among people who just want to have a good conversation. Because as soon as someone hears they don't have free will, there's almost a violent response to that. Um, the number one response I hear from people like, we don't have free will, they're like, I could punch you in the face right now, like, and prove that I don't have it. I'm like, look, the fact that you want to punch me in the face right now is like, you know, a, an automatic response to be challenged in the notion that you're in control of your fate. So like, the fact that you feel like you need to hold back from punching me right now, you're you know, you're living out like the, 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 the natural cause and effect reaction to hearing this. 
But I, I was having a conversation with a, a friend in Australia a couple of years ago about this. We're in the, outside a cafe in Sydney, and we we're talking about the lack of free will. And my buddy um, was on board with me, and his wife was not. And she's like one of the smartest people I know. She's really challenging uh, my position. And I, I didn't know how to, you know, you try to figure out how to approach this question in a way that helps helps someone else wrestle with it because I don't have all the answers, but I don't even often have the right questions. But I finally asked her, I'm like, could you choose to stop loving your husband right now? And she was like, you know, only if he did this, that, you know, if he did this or this, he, she gave me causes that would lead to the effect. And I was like, no, no, just sitting here right now, could you choose to stop loving him? And did you choose to start loving him or did it just happen because of things that happened to you? And she realized, okay, I, I'm not free to stop loving him. And I wasn't free to prevent myself from falling in love with him. And I was like, you would rob him of the influence that he's had on your life. And, and if he said that he had free will, he would be robbing you of the influence you've had on his life to say that I'm free to choose um, how I feel and what I do. When in reality is this amazing person in my life has had this incredible influence and made me bond and feel things in a very powerful way. So in some ways, claiming free will um, is a, kind of a slap in the face to the people around us that have, um, you know, that, that we love. The reason we love them is because we had no choice. They were who they were, and our response was to love them. And saying that I could give up that love anytime I wanted, just with a decision, it is a fallacy. And I think when, you know, for, for her, that helped her see that, hey, there are certain things I'm not in control over. Um, I like to think I will is like cats, like thinking that you have any control over what they do. You're out of your mind. And Mabel's just a regular guest star on the show. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry uh, for the long-winded. Viewers watch for her. I'd have been disappointed if she hadn't come in. Um, obviously, I think that I, I Zombie Two would be redundant and, and, and unnecessary. I you nailed it the first time, but have you thought about maybe taking another classic monster and putting that Hugh Howie spin on it? Um, yeah, <laughs> actually, I have a have, I have a vampire book that I started uh, years ago that I keep playing with, and I think it's the most I think it's the best concept for a a, a vampire book, and I'm I'm dying to I'm dying to finish it one day. Um, but it's about a it's, a, it's about a guy who's on the West Coast, and he's a, a vampire living with another vampire. And he, this, he's living through the rise of vampire uh, book culture and, and all the twilight. There's, there's a fictional author in the book that has written the twilight of, their, of this world. And everyone's just pretending to be vampires, and they you know, think being vampires are so glamorous. And the reality of being a vampire is just terrible. Uh, you know, it's just like hates that he's a vampire and he's so sick of this and is he's deciding he's going to travel to the East Coast where this author is going to be on tour and find her and murder her to put an end to this like vampire <laughs> fascination. And, uh, you know, he's got to travel only at night. So he's using this very complex bus route uh, that he's mapped out to get there. And the first bus stop he goes to, he falls in with this. You know, there's a cute girl there, and it turns out she's, like, one of the number one fans of this. She's part of this whole, like, she's also, you know, riding buses to get to the book tour. And so he kind of gets this crush on someone who loves this culture. And <laughs> by the, So it's, it's a, um, a hero's journey where 
by the time he gets there, he may or may not actually kill this author that his whole life he's just dreamed about and might be for this girl. And what he does when he gets there will be a, the, I don't want to ruin the end, but if I ever write it. But yeah, so my... I'll my, sit her down and explain how things actually work and get a better edition of the next book. <laughs> my, ta- my take on a vampire novel would be to write a vampire novel about a vampire who's totally sick of, of vampire novels. I have a vampire story since since we're sharing. I guess I think it's better that I never actually write it because the idea is it's about a writer who's been around for 200 years working on his novel idea. And every night he gets high with his buddies and hangs out. And next day he gets up, ah, maybe I'm going to write it. And it's, he's never going to write it. It's going to be a thousand years. And I don't know how you put that into a story form. I just love the idea of one, the writer that has eternity and can't get their book done, and two, not actually writing the story about the writer that can't get the book done. I think what you should do is write, um, make, me, make him even older, make him several hundred years old, and have the book mostly be first chapters of all the books that he started over the years, and then <laughs> and then break into like a little bit of journaling about like, you know, he, he just, he starts writing this immediately, and you're like, it's this like Victorian age vampire novel because he's living in those times. And then it just like goes into him writing about his life and like, I'll never write this. I'm a terrible and I suck at writing. And then the next chapter is the start of his World War II experience. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so you could, it's actually an idea I had for, I was going to take like a whole bunch of first chapters I've written that like the vampire book I just mentioned. I've got a dozen of these first chapters of books that may never get written, and I should make an anthology of them. And all you get is the first chapter. You have no idea what happens next. Yeah, I would give it. I'd give it away. I wouldn't make someone pay for it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's your, your 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 book, but I think that would absolutely be fun to put that out there. Plus, it would be exciting for all the writers that are in a similar spot to be able to actually read the chapters. I'm like, what, what's wrong with him? This was this was great. Happened. I, I would actually, I would encourage people like pick your favorite chapter and finish the book and put it on sale. I want to read it because I, I would love to see where people take these stories. It'd be like a different take on fan fiction. Like, here's the prompt, the writing prompt, and it could just be the second chapter could be the end of the story, but it'd be fun to see where people took it. Well, that reminds me, I, I, I promised COVID nineteen and we're out, but I, I had a question about wool and Amazon Worlds. Did that never bother you opening up the Silo universe for just any Joker to write in? And did you actually go and read any of the stories? I read a few of them, but I, I opened it up before Amazon Worlds even became a thing. Like I was letting people write fan fiction um, uh, really early on. People what reached out to me, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I, have, I didn't even know people were going to want to do this." But yeah, if you write something, though, I was big into authors being able to be supported and make a living with their craft. So when I heard people were doing it, I was like, yeah, but like self-publish it and, and charge for it, put it on sale for 99 cents, try to make some money. And my agent lawyer would freak out when they heard about this stuff. But um, I just don't see the the harm in it. I think the roots of storytelling were collaborative and the, the Bible itself is a lot of fan fiction. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different tellings of the same oral tradition so um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not precious about things like that. If people want to read them, they're there. If they don't want to read them, they don't have to read them. But there's some great stuff out there in the, in the fan fiction world. You're, you're, you're a different being than I am. Uh, my stuff's half original at best, and I will kill anybody that tries to. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, think about think about um, musicians. Their first thing they do when they learn an instrument is they don't play their own song. They play covers. They they learn from imitation, and they um, they'll spend you know a good part of their early career just playing other people's tunes before they start writing their own. And I see fan fiction in the same way. Like it's easy to get up and start playing with someone else's world and their characters than it is to come up with your own new ones. And you develop skills that help you transition into being a great writer. And it's, we're so weird about, um, uh, you know, in jazz, you play the standards. People have covered, you know, summertime a million times. They, you play the same tunes over and over again and everyone puts their own spin on it and we embrace it in music and even in film with remakes and, and other stuff. But for some reason with books, we, we, we treat them differently and it doesn't make sense to me. And we haven't always treated them differently. Like a lot of Shakespeare's, I think almost all of Shakespeare's works, except maybe The Tempest, were based on other plays or historical events and, um, you know, com- common legend. So uh, the idea that everything should be uh, ex nihilo with books and all original is kind of bizarre. No, I agree. It's a, it's a dumb idea. It's just a personal hang-up. I, I, I'm convinced that no matter what he says in interviews, Bob Dylan sometimes lies awake at night and says, my version of All Along the Watchtower was great and never should have let Hendrix cover it. <laughs> I hope he doesn't think that. Hendrix. I hope. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure he's more <laughs> Okay. Uh, we gotta we got to think about bringing this thing home, but question I, I'm dying to ask you because you're Hugh Howie. I've been paying attention to you and your thoughts on publishing for, uh, God, what, maybe I'm cl- getting close to a decade now. Um, just checking in and seeing what's, 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 what's that guy over there with all the energy uh, and all the passion about the market thinking about. I, I, I remember the author earnings reports. I used to read those uh, with, with great appreciation because you've been following publishing. So if you say a thing about publishing, I'll believe you because I, I have yet to have reason not to. So with uh, our current situation, with probably we're going to see continued layoffs with the big five, we may see some uh, continued consolidation. Um, uh, one nice thing is we're seeing a lot of editors that have you know great professional experience suddenly going freelance and being available to all of us. How wonderful. Um, what do you think uh, publishing looks like after this, three years from now, five years from now? What's what's going to be the change? Uh, one thing that one thing that publishing should do that um, if you read my blog post from seven years ago or so when I was like this is the things that publishing should do the number one thing I said I is they that should. That was a great post. Yeah, well, I thought so too, but I got some feedback from some some publishing people who thought I was out of my mind. But um, one of my top things was they should move out of New York immediately. Um, this uh, the real estate here is crazy. It makes no sense to crowd into these buildings together and do work that can all be done remotely and you could expand your hiring pool you could uh, pay people better and you could afford to give authors um, health insurance and all kinds of things if you weren't wasting money on on the real estate here you know random house even spent a ton of money on their old building here that was a complete fiasco and um i think right now what you're seeing uh i live near the google building and my friends who work there told you'll you'll not come back this year and for those who want it, I think Twitter has announced anybody who wants to continue working from home the rest of their career with Twitter, they can. And um, there's never been a, an industry better suited to being distributed and work from home than the publishing career. Like you just don't need to get in, in, 
and face-to-face -face meetings for, for things that need to get done. So uh, a lot of money can be saved there. Uh, I don't think they're brave enough to do it, but publishers should definitely do that. Um, I think uh, um, there's not much on the horizon I can see that's different than what we've got now. I can just see trends that are going to expand, like audiobooks are going to continue to do well. I think the opportunities and for writers are going to be um, growing outside of books as video games become a lot more narrative and have better writing and better storytelling. Um, as uh, so much TV content is getting made, there's a lot of room for more writers to get jobs there. So um, I think writers should look at how they're going to expand out of um, what they think of as a book as their only output into different ways that they could tell story and, and um, make living, make living and uh, derive some income. Um, but for publishing itself, our biggest challenge is going to be inspiring people to read. And I think that's something we should all be focusing on at a, at a young age, getting kids to fall in love with reading and uh, maybe stop teaching so many of other subjects in the form of books. Like don't teach math with books, only teach math through apps and websites. Um, teach history in a way that's more engaging instead of just dry books. Because early on, a lot of kids learn that if, when they're handed something shaped like a book, they're handing something that's painful or boring or um, we just start to associate that object with unpleasant feelings and we don't need to teach these other subjects through that medium. And I would say, let's think of ways to transition to where when we hand someone that, something that's shaped like a book, we're giving them an escape, we're giving them pure joy, we're giving them only the best nonfiction that sparks their, their minds and their imaginations. And that way they're hooked on this, uh, this object that if you look behind you, like, you know, you and I are in love with and hooked on and have shaped our lives in positive ways. And thinking from the ground up like that, how do we make books um, uh, have the same appeal to far more people? It shouldn't be 5% of people who graduate from high school that go on to be big readers and love books. It should be 95%. And there are mistakes that we make along the way with um, education that, that disrupts that. And publisher should, publishers should be a big part of that um, uh, that process of coming up with ideas and having uh, more of a relationship with um, primary schools to make sure that they're going to have a lot of customers. And I don't see that effort. I don't see that um, those kind of programs in place. Instead, they're just chasing the crumbs and scraps that are falling off this much bigger entertainment uh, buffet. You know, and more people are going into games and TV than they are. Uh, novels. So that's where we need to be putting our focus. And that's my fear that, that reading could eventually become like the opera, something that's around and people who are devoted to it can find it, but it doesn't have the, the wide appeal and the lasting legacy that it, that it used to have. And I'm talking a hundred years out, that could be the, the future for reading because virtual reality is going to get amazing and all kinds of other entertainment is going to come along. Um, so, yeah, that's where I see things going for the next 10 or 20 years. It'll be the same trends. Self-publishing is going to keep uh, taking in market share. We're going to see consolidation among publishers. We're going to see parent companies that own big publishing houses give them up because there's less prestige there anymore and they're not making enough money from them. Um, but one thing, two things I know, there's always going to be uh, readers out there looking for great stories and there's always going to be more talented writers 
than um, than we know what to do with. And so the future is bright for people that love books and people that love to write. And uh, I just wish that we could uh, expand that audience and and get more people who have talent to be discovered and get their work out there. I think it's probably never been a better time in the uh, existence of humans to be a writer. There's, there's more literate people than have, that have ever been. Yeah. I've said that every year that I've been in the publishing industry, that this year is the best year there's ever been to be a reader or a writer. And the next year is better. Every year you've been able to say that. So that makes me think the future is positive in a lot of ways. Um, I think uh, ebooks should be celebrated. Um, there's a lot of rural people who don't have libraries and bookstores near them and and they can hit a button and and have a huge library available to them so i think uh all these innovations that that scare people we should see the bright side and how they're helping um uh keep our our industry going and alive and embrace that i think that is the perfect note to end on i i, I think we nailed it i, I think this is the interview I dreamed it would be and beyond. This has been an excellent conversation and I, I can't thank you enough. I know you would let me talk your face off all night if I don't put a stop to it and be responsible. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure I had way too many um, uh, uh, distractions. So um, when you do episode uh, like 108 or something random like that, I'll come back on and we'll get to the questions that we missed. Oh, don't tease me. I'll, I'll take you up on it. <laughs> all right. It's Dave. Um, as always, Steve Nuggets, head to HughHowie.com. Get yourself a copy of iZombie if there's time. Maybe Wool or Beacon 23 also, but read iZombie. It'll change your life forever. Uh, head to <laughs> MiddleGradeNinja.com. Keep up with me. Keep up with the show. Download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It's free. It's free for you. And you're in quarantine. I know you've got time to read it. It'll be a good time. Uh, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.